Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everybody into Garden of Doom. Uh, this week we have with us uh, Robert Phoenix, and he is going to tell, tell us a bunch of stuff that I don't know what they are. Maybe I do, I just don't know the terms, but before we get started, I want to greet uh, Mr. Phoenix, how are you, Robert? Thanks for joining us. I'm great, Jeff. Thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, and your degrees and what you do. Right. Okay. So I have two degrees, believe it or not. One is uh, in English literature, which um, I acquired in 1984. That's when I graduated from San Francisco State. Um, I think Annette Benning, the actress who's Warren Beatty's wife, was part of my graduating class, although I did not know her. Sure, she was also and the villain in Captain Marvel for you newbies. Yeah, there you go. Um, and then I, I actually have an associate of arts degree, which is an absolute nothing degree, <laughs> um, from a junior college in California. But my time there was actually um, quite instructive. Because I was involved in, back in the day, we used to call it telecommunications. And telecommunications was really more about uh, radio and TV versus, say, like communication over the wire or over satellite links. That would come later. So that's what we called it. And I, so I studied radio and TV for about two years at a junior college, and I learned a lot. Um, and then I went through a weird... Um, experience, weird event, and I changed my major because I kind of got a taste of 
that world in a way that was fairly unsavory for me. And then I, I became an English lit major and I activated a different part of my brain. So before it was more production based, I grew up on TV. I knew a lot about just how to produce things naturally because I had watched a lot of TV my entire life. So I was, a, you know, I was like a TV Tom from um, uh, Willy Wonka, right? So, but then I had to look at the world through a much more critical lens. And I had about a three-year intense training in English Lit. And I realized how little I knew. Um, and some of that was based on the fact that my college professors pointed that out to me, um, which was good. It was humbling and good. And, and then I was also around like a whole cadre of people who'd been reading all their lives. And I was a TV guy, right? Mm -hmm. I, I just watched TV and movies and listen to the radio. I'd read every now and then. It wasn't like I was a non-reader. Like I'd read Dude in junior high school and stuff like that. But not, you know, I wasn't I wasn't reading, you know, Madame Bovary, you know, when I was a sophomore or right. anything like that. So I encountered these people and I'm like, wow, you know, I'm in deep water here because I'll never forget it. One day I was I, I had this class of romanticism and uh, we were studying Blake. And this one guy said to the teacher, he said, so in your estimation, um, Blake, Blake's cosmology is actually an exposition of libido. And I'm like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> and then the teacher thought about it for a moment. He was very thoughtful. And he says, yes, I believe that to be true. So I knew I was in deep water and that, coupled with the fact that I got really humbled by a professor there, and I'm grateful for that. I just like, shut the fuck up. And I said, I got to catch up really quickly. So I had a, a an experience during that period of time which sort of dovetails with what happened with that part of my life. And it was, um, how do I talk about it without taking a, too much airspace here? Basically, I had a dark night of the soul, and I was around 20, I was late 21, just maybe about to turn 22, late 21, it was, let's see, it was probably April of 1981, so I hadn't turned 21 yet, I was still 20, and um, I had this dark night of the soul, and it had to do with a lot of different things, uh, I had to do with, you know, me passing out the wheel of my car, wow like a Friday night, headed to San Francisco. I bounced off the center divider. I lived, I uh, woke up very quickly. Um, but that started this whole string of events for that weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you know, I had had what I would call, uh, for lack of a better term, a connection with God, because my life had spun so out of control over that 72 hours. And I, I'd hit a very dark place. And I got, um, I, you know, I, I, I actually went into a prayer moment, like, you know, help me out here. You know, I'm having a very difficult time. I even had like almost like a, what I would call a past life review up to 20. Saw how much of a fuck up I was, uh, you know, how much potential theoretically I could have been squandered. And then I was, I was lifted up out of that. And from, from that point forward, I knew that my life was going to be different. And 
coupled with that was a series of meetings with this older gentleman. I used to be a, uh, a uh, assistant recreation director at a singles apartment complex. And people who may not be old enough to know that there were actually apartments that were created for single people, right? And the idea was that we're going to, you can live here, you'll be with other singles, we have a pool, we have a rec room, we have activities for you. So I was, I was the assistant recreation director of this place. It, it, it sounds like a uh, interesting business model, except when they get together, then they have to get, then they have to get lost. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it was really, a, it was the model itself, I think, was appealing for a lot of people at that time. Until they weren't single. <laughs> well, who were single, right. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, just like going into a place like that, you have agreement, right. right? There's like this unspoken agreement. I'm single, you're single, we're here to mingle, right? I mean, that's what it's about. Right. And in some instances, it was... Tinder residences. People would meet each other and maybe, you know, they'd get married or whatever. But there was just a lot of debauchery that went on in these places. Sure. And I and I had a front row seat. So I met this guy there who was not part of that. He probably didn't get the memo. He was in his sixties and he was what I would consider a, a mystic. He was like the first mystic that I met. So he would give me these like mimeographed copies of pages from Edgar Casey or Ruth Montgomery. Um, and I'd read them. I'm like, wow, oh, man, this is really interesting stuff. And I'd always had an interest in these things. But now I got this pipeline. This guy is feeding me stuff. So one day, I think it might have been one of my last days. I wound up getting fired because I was kind of out of control. And he gave me this book. And it was this white book, hardbound. Um, and that had these golden boss letters that were, you know, kind of sunken. Right? And it was uh, My Truth the Lord himself. And I'm like, okay, I'm not ready for this. Yeah. I'm not really ready for this. I will take, I'll take the, the Casey stuff. And my, I just do this. Is, this is above my pay grade right now. So after I had this experience in San Francisco, I believe it was April of 2021. I said to myself, it's time for that book. So I started to read this book and the most amazing thing happened to me in my life. And, it was almost as if the, the words on the book just were really written on my soul. I'd never experienced anything like that. And, and I could only read like two or three pages, four pages at a time because the material was so dense. Right. And on some level, I got it. And on another level, I didn't get it. But the more that I read it, the more that I realized that I was getting more of it. Yeah. And as I continued to go through this book, my life started to really change. And, so, and as a result, when I decided that I was going to do this English lit stuff, I just went into like overtime with it. Like I knew that I was in deep water with these people, but I also had this thirst and desire for quote unquote knowledge. So, you know, we, I would have these classes and we'd have a syllabus, but then I'd, I'd read on top of that. Like I, I'd want to read reference works and reference points like, you know, who is Rollo May? Or, you know, who is um, Joseph Campbell? Who is Carl Jung? So all these um, sort of tangential sources started to fill backfill for me. So that was a very interesting time. And eventually I, I wound up getting a degree in English literature. And it's one of those things where, you know, I look back on my life and 
And I can see that both of those experiences played a role, right? Like I learned the media stuff to some degree when I was in junior college, and then I got the other training. And I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't really like thinking, oh, I'm going to put these two worlds together and somewhere down the line, I'm going to be able to use my, you know, these skills or whatever that I learned to decode things. Cause that's really what you do as an, as an English lit major, you're supposed to find out sure. you know, what the meaning of the work is and then understand how to do it from a media standpoint. So that, that all came together in a kind of unique way. And then I began the esoteric journey, uh, which led me to some places like Findhorn in Scotland. Are you familiar with Findhorn at all? I don't think so. So Findhorn was a, an intentional community that was started by Will, uh, Peter Caddy, Eileen Caddy, and uh, Dorothy McQueen. And I first found out about Findhorn through the movie My Dinner with Andre, okay. which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Yep. So I thought to myself, man, I got to go to this place. It sounds remarkable. So I did. I, I went there when I graduated from college. It was part of a uh, post-grad experience with the University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I went to Finborn and these two other communities. And, um, you know, their whole thing was that, uh, you know, they grew these enormously large vegetables in a little uh, uh, trailer park in the Finborn Bay. And that got the attention of the BBC, got all this press. These people wanted to go there. So this intentional community came out around it. The people around Findhorn have unique backgrounds. Like Dorothy was a member of the OSS, um, you know, very early intelligence community. Right. A precursor to uh, the, the, the CIA. Yeah, exactly. She was like the Canadian version of the OSS. And I met Dorothy, and she was a wonderful person. And Dorothy's work centered around connecting with um, sort of the Davic spirits of the plants. So if you go online, you'll see books by Dorothy McLean where these Davic spirits or these elementals of the plant kingdom are communicating with her. And they're pretty, they're, they're pretty interesting in their own way. Like, and then Peter was, I believe, RAF, and he was a Rosicrucian. So you can see that there might have been some interesting kind of occult and esoteric roots sure. connected with freedom. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't really care. Well, even in retrospect, I don't really Connected care. with the, the most established institution you you can think of, the, the military intelligence communities. So yeah, it's, and of course the BBC's there. They're doing the documentary on the place, right? Right. So even in retrospect, I really don't care if that's what happened. Because I, I think the thing that I think as yeah, as we move through this journey, right, it's really um, easy to sort of get caught up in this idea that, well, this is bad, and this is bad, and this is bad, and this is good, and anything that has 33 or 66 or 666 in it is considered to be evil. Or, And I think that there's probably some truth to that. But there's also, like, you look at something like Findhorn, which looks like it was probably an intelligence operation to some degree. But out of it, you have some very interesting experiences and people that, you know, that come out of it and come through it with a degree of, you know, what, you know, some form of enlightenment, whether it's 
valid or not. If it's not valid, then they find out it's not valid, and that's valid in and of itself, right? Sure. Let, let me frame a little bit of this for the, the audience so that they have some context. Uh, I mean, they're probably putting things together as, uh, as they listen, but um, you are identified as an astromythicist. Uh, your biography also states astrologer, writer, speaker, and synchromystic. So I think most people generally know what an astrologer is. I'm not sure if people know what an astromythicist is, and I'm not sure they know exactly what a synchromystic is, though I, I think that if they reflect on what you were just saying, they probably got some of it. But let's start at the beginning. What What is an astromythicist? So an astromythicist is something actually made up. And usually... You're not my first guest who invented their own term, so that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, how do I describe what I did? And it's like, okay, I use astrology, but there's also mythology from the past, mythologies from the future, like, for instance, Blade Runner's mythology, and mythologies that we're currently engaged in. So, for instance, the whole cube movement is a mythology in and of itself. So we're swimming in a sea of myth, and it's being able to like make these connections past, present, and future and try to distill them in a way that we understand where we are, if we can. And astrology is has become like a, a bedrock for me over the last, when did I really start getting into it professionally? Since 2008. So I was able to use things like mundane astrology to understand to, to a, a large degree, not to the extent of everything, you know, what I would call, um, you know, a version of our reality. So you add the two together using astrology and this idea that, that myth is a theme that runs through our lives, past, present, and future. And what I try to do is help understand those myths for myself and explain them to other people. And synchromystic, just, uh, just so we get the yeah, definition of that. synchromystic is not something I made up. It's a fairly common term. It's when people are able to use things like synchronicities um, as a point of departure. And, and they can lead people in any number of directions. Like I, I, I had Christopher Knowles on uh, as a guest on my show a couple of weeks ago, and he classifies himself as a synchromistic. When you say departures, do you mean like uh, meditations that, that, that take you, you know, sort of a, not to be tripe, but out-of-body experience? Well, not really. Kind of like along the lines of, um, well, let's take comic book heroes, for example. Like, like what, you know, what is the uh, current trend in, in comic book heroes? Well, for me, what, what I see, you mentioned Captain Marvel, is the emergence of, you know, the feminine in comic books, in comic book, for better or worse. I have my own opinions about it. Sure. So what does that mean? Right. What is what is the you know it, this to me this would be like a, a, an iteration of astromythicism because when you look at a, a, a fixed star like Regulus, which for for a very long period of time we're talking literally thousands of years, it had been in the sign of Leo, and Regulus is considered to be the most royal of the royal stars. So when we think of Leo. What do we think about? We think about things like the hero's journey. We think about kings. We think about Arthurian legends. 
grill class, all those things kind of go along with Leo, mm-hmm. right? Athletes, you know, the great athletes, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Hercules, Richard the Lionhearted. Right, all that stuff falls into that Regulus and Leo territory. In 2011, it's very rare to watch a fixed star change signs, and we witnessed that in 2011 when Regulus went into the sign of Virgo. So what is Virgo? Virgo is not Leo. Virgo, first of all, Leo's masculine. Virgo's feminine. And Virgo has to do with, like, the people, right? So theoretically, in astrology, if you look at Leo, Leo's rulership. But then they need the people in order to maintain their rulership. Sure. Right? They, they need the people to cut their lawns or cut their toenails or whatever. Well, that's very Virgo. And that's the next sign over. So Regulus made this huge shift. And and I see it in terms of like the new version of heroes in modern mythology, Captain Marvel or you know, uh, you know, fill in the blanks. Uh, Lady Thor, that, Lady know, Wolverine, Miss yeah, Marvel. Yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah, like and even like what female Thor, right? I mean things so to me that represents a relationship or reflection of this shift from Leo into Virgo with Regulus. So, so now so, we have a, a so, different way of looking. So literally, as above, so is below. I mean, it's, right. it's, now we're into astrotheology, which is another school of synchromysticism. And so I, these are the things I look at, I talk about, and you can even see it in terms of, because Virgo is very functionary, right? It's very, very functionary. And so when you look at people that are empowered now, theoretically, mm-hmm. right? What do we see? We see a bunch of functionaries, and they're not even very good. Barely so functional. This, this is part of the story. And we're, we're at a very, you know, nascent sort of place around all of this. And it will work itself out eventually. But in the early degrees of a sign, we get the most unfiltered and unadulterated um, potential of it. So... That's a version of astro-mythicism, looking at what's happening currently and then looking at, you know, where we are astrologically, me honing in on that fixed star, the shift from kind of masculine and male-oriented hero's journey into feminine, feminine-oriented hero's journey and how it manifests now for better or worse. Right. And there's a... Populism writ large is more of a Virgo. It's more of the uh, the sign of the people rather than the royalty. Uh, right, and it's feminine. I mean, I think that's a really important aspect to recognize is that it's a feminine sign, and it's not a masculine sign. Which, and we're seeing, you know, and even this idea, the uncomfortable idea of having a guy who's taking estrogen, right, because he can't win a medal in the male world. He moves over into the female world and starts to dominate, you know, college swimming. Right? Even that's kind of an iteration of it. Leah Thomas, I think you're talking Leah about. Leah Thomas, right. Leah. It's interesting because Leah isn't that far from, like, Leo, right? It's like, like it has a similar... I mean, I don't think the etymology is the same, but... Because I haven't really looked at it, but it sounds very similar. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like, okay, we're going to change the first name. We're going to we're going to alter this. And, and I feel like that that's kind of part of it. We're, we're swimming, again, there's another metaphor, 
in this world now where it's upside down because for a long time we've dealt with this Leo world. We've dealt with this idea that we would be on the hero's journey and you know, we would, we would find our competency along the way that somewhere in there, this idea of the meritocracy would also be uh, rewarded, but that's not true anymore. And so we see these functionaries that are being elevated who haven't even really earned those things, but because, and I'm not saying this is a direct outgrowth of this fixed star changing signs, but you can make a causal relationship between the two and say, oh, that's interesting. So now we've got people who should really be working at the DMV in higher positions of government. And that's why, and, and some of that I think actually is intentional as well, but that's a whole different discussion. Right. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, if you asked me two years ago when I started the show, and I, and I didn't start it initially um, solo, the, the, the audience of the show is well aware of that, but uh, this may be some context. But if you asked me two years ago about astrology, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know much about astrology. I, I know people read their signs. I know sometimes I read the signs. You know, I know that I'm a Scorpio. People say I'm a typical Scorpio. I figure I was born in November as a baby. I got exposed to pretty cold weather and gray weather, and, and that makes me moody. You know, that, that, that was about the extent of it for, for me. Now, at two years later, Seeing how much is tied to twelve, how much is how, how much is tied to uh, the signs in the sky, not just navigation, but so many other things. I mean, so many things are tied to astrology in religion, uh, in in the, the the three major religions, but not just uh, in all cultures. That whether it's real or not, we've we've you know, it's like one of those questions: who made what real was. Did the astrology make it real, or did we make astrology real? And and that's not a question that I mean it does sound like an astromethicist would, would would be the right person to ask, but that's not the question I intend to ask. Though if you feel it's important, we can get to it. Yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting question, and I feel like that it's both because you know we it's sort of like a version in some ways of machine learning, right? Like we through our intentionality. Um, populate the, how do I say this? We, we, we animate it, right? Through our intentionality, we animate the thing. Right. But, but the thing, there's got to be a thing there for us to be able to say yes to you and animate, or else it wouldn't work, right? It is a reciprocal relationship. And at the end of the day, and this is, you know, I teach astrology, and, um, and, and I have a show that I do on Sunday nights about astrology. At the end of the day, I tell people it's just a system, and all systems are finite. So it can be very, very useful in understanding certain things about who we are, human nature, uh, the mundane potential of astrology, the astro-mythological potential for astrology. I think it's a really good tool. It's not the ultimate tool. The, the ultimate tool goes beyond that. It's not even a tool. It's just business. I have a few questions for you on the basics of astrology because I'm not sure that all my listeners know that much about it. I'm not sure I know that much about it. So, listen, until a few months ago, I really didn't understand what the basis of astrology was. I mean, the the most simplistic basis. And as I understand it, it is it's just the procession that follows the 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 sun's procession, whatever the order of the constellations are. Um, I'm not even sure that's correct. Um, because, uh, listen, I, I used to have, <laughs> actually my, my dad, who's, who's 81 now 
uh, in his bedroom in my grandparents' house had these two maps with like, you know, uh, anthropomorphized or, or artistic renderings of the constellations. They were navigational maps and they were really cool. Uh, the reason I talk about them is because I would show them to you so you could you could help me with them, except I think I sort of lost them in my divorce, um, e even though they were from my, uh, uh, who knows, they were probably my grandfather's for all, you know, for all I know. Anyway, that's not important, except that, you know, there's far more than the 12 constellations. In fact, I was reading something that, that you know, I mean, if you do the math, four weeks in a month, you know, the phases of the moon, you actually come out with 48 weeks. And so there's a 13th, there should be a 13th month. And then I looked at, into right. that. Yeah. And there's this poor Ophiuchus. 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 So I think this is an important distinction to, to, to make. It's very important to yeah. me because it's yeah. my yeah. sign that bumped Ophiuchus out. I'm a Scorpio, and Scorpio is only apparently there for seven days. So I, I yeah. listen. So I feel great about that. But I want to know what did Ophiuchus do to me? Ophiuchus didn't really do anything to you. So when, so when you look at astrology, the Western version of astrology is sign-based, it is not constellation-based. And Ptolemy, who was the father of Western astrology, made a change, right? He made a change and he said, this is going to be the astrological new year which starts in Aries and it ends in Pisces. Wait, wait, so let's say Ptolemy, like the Alexander the Great General Ptolemy? Yes. Okay. That Ptolemy. So we're talking about, what's that, about 500 BC, 400 BC, something like that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Ptolemy changes everything with astrology. And before that, like if you look at a constellation-based astrology, just using 13 constellations, you could do that in sidereal astrology, but you have to go to a you have to go to a lunation or lunar-based um, system where you have essentially of uh, um, 13 months, right? You have 13 months mm -hmm. and you have 20 days, so you get the 360 degrees. 360, uh, or, I'm sorry, it's a 360, no, it's uh, two, 230, it's 230. So that's similar to the to the, to the Mayan count, which is also um, a lunation-based system. So Ptolemy comes along and says, 12 signs, we start with Aries, Astrological New Year, we go through that, and then we end in Pisces. So Ptolemy was really a uh, more of an astronomer, um, uh, and, and he did write a book on astrology, but that's not considered his major work. His major work is much more astronomy. What's a thumbnail d distinction between astronomy and astrology, and then pick up where you left so, off? So they were, they were more closely linked a long time ago. Like in, in, in Ptolemy's world, there was very little distinction between the two. But if you're an astronomer now, like you would, you would, you would, not first of all, more than likely you wouldn't agree with astrology because you know most of the time astronomers will will invariably bring up, hey, did you know there's actually 13 signs? Right? That we're like, you know, I just did. <laughs> right, exactly. So, but what's so there's a bit of a distinction between the two because they're they're different systems. Like like Ptolemy changed how we look at astronomy by turning it into a regimented system basically of equal houses at a 360 degree map, right? For essentially a solar year. So, um, but what's also, what's interesting about astronomy and astrology is that they both recognize the retrograde motion of planets, which I think is fascinating. It's like, oh, well, 
look, astronomy recognizes a retrograde motion. So does so does astrology. So they still have something in common, although the, the, what they agree upon is very very different. What's retrograde um, mean? Retrograde. It's when a planet appears to go backwards in the sky, right? So when you look at a Mercury retrograde, there's there's a time when it looks like Mercury's actually moving backwards. Now, some people will say that it's a, a an optical illusion, but if so, but if it's an optical illusion, then why do astronomers and astrologers agree upon that? There's astrologers who don't even believe in Mercury retrograde. There are very few of them, but there, you know, there's there's a, there's no one like one size fits all model. Mm-hmm. Like even now in what we would call modern astrology, a lot of people, especially younger people, have been indoctrinated in what we call like whole signs or equal houses because it seems to be closer to Hellenic astrology. Please don't ask me about Hellenic astrology Deal. because I, I, my, my knowledge of Hellenic astrology is very limited. Okay. I don't want to sound like an idiot, um, although I'm not afraid to. Every now and then. <laughs> but, but, but I like to say, you know, into things I mostly know about. If I don't know about them, I'll tell you that I don't know about it. But, um, but the other thing, too, with a whole sign of equal houses is that it's easier. It's like it's kind of a, you know, kind of a pie model. Every slice of the pie is the same. Right. Whereas, whereas with what we call Placidus astrology, the houses aren't always equal, and you may have some houses that are what we call intercepted. I don't want to get too technical, but um, so you know, the whole idea of astrology and how it works. And you may actually ask me that question. So let me give you my, you know, my thoughts around how I think it works. Sure. Part of which, part of it we've already discussed, which is we're feeding into the model by our conscious intention and participation with it, right? But again, there has to be there there for us to do it. The the commonly held thought, and I think that there's some truth to this, is that the planets, and again, you're going to have to understand that there is an idea of space, which I do think there is, um, that these planets would have an impact on one another, right? that they would have some kind of geocosmic potential around influencing other planets in relationship to space and where you were born at a particular time, right? And the idea that you were born in November, that there is a different quality of light during that time, that all factors into it, unless, of course, you were born in November in South America, which flips everything on its head, right? So is there a universal definition above the equator and below the equator? My answer to that would be yes. Um, so when you look at how they, again, theoretically discover Uranus, because you can see Saturn in the night sky, right? Saturn is the furthest planet you can see. can't see Uranus. But when they started to have telescopes, they began, they being astronomers, began to notice that Saturn was having these perturbations. What's going on with the perturbation? Why is it doing this thing that that Jupiter isn't doing or Mars isn't doing? So they began to wrap their heads around there was something interfering with the field of Saturn beyond Saturn. Gravitational interaction or whatnot. Right, exactly. So the idea is that the amplification power with telescopes got better. And then they were like, oh, look, there's this thing that's behind Saturn 
that's actually influence and sound. So retrograde is when something else is interacting with that other planet or celestial really, body. No, retrograde has nothing to do with that. Oh. <laughs> retrograde is, again, <laughs> when a planet looks like it's moving backwards. Now, here, let me backtrack. I, I, I'll, again, I'm going to be honest. I've never looked into that. So maybe that could be something causal with retrograde. Okay. Right? So I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss that. Um, but... For our purposes, retrograde is just the appearance from Earth when you see a planet exactly. that looks like it's going backwards. Exactly. The reason why is beyond the scope of this conversation. So the same thing happened with Uranus. Uranus displayed the same perturbations. And they applied the same technique. Telescopic power got better, and hence they discovered Neptune. Right. And then it go, that goes all the way out to Pluto. And then theoretically, they've even discovered what they call exoplanets. Yep. That are beyond Pluto, like sure. Eris and a few others. So, the idea that these planets would have um, impact on the other planet is one credence of thought that these planets have this ability to influence one another in the galactic field or in the cosmic field. And I think there's some truth to that. The other component here tends to be in areas that may not even be provable. Like, for instance, Casey's idea of what these planets represent. They represent consciousness. And in these, in Casey's world, Edgar Casey's world. Yeah, so, so let's look back for a second. For folks who don't know who Edgar Casey is, and listen, I'm going to give you a, a very dime store description because I'm not even sure I'm 100% correct. But Edgar Casey was very famous for writing about Atlantis, which he apparently had visions about. Uh, but he's equally famous for being. Uh, a long-distance psychic healer, uh, people he never met, and there's something like 230 or something like that, uh, documented cases, whatever that means, of his interventions working on healing people. And I think, if I'm not correct, it was around 100 years ago? Yeah, and Casey, exactly. Casey was uh, known as the sleeping prophet. And um, one of the famous cases with Casey was... um, a woman who came to him, literally came to him, he, was, he lived in Virginia Beach, and came to him for a session. Um, and he was in a trance. He did not know uh, where she was from. She, didn't, she did not speak, but she was there. And somebody uh, was able to basically tell him what her condition was. And he started to speak to her in Italian. Hmm. Right. So this is documented. And he would do things like this. He would he would sleep on books, and the, theoretically, he would, you know, acquire knowledge from sleeping on a book. Um, and his his cures, he had a number of cures. He also came up with quite interesting, and a lot of them were uh, spot on, on like on the money. Uh, so Casey's idea around planets is that planets represented a certain type of consciousness. So, for instance, if you you know, in the in the uh, you know interim of your life, if you want to, you know, like after you leave your body, if you wanted to go learn about love, you would go to Venus, and Venus would would you, that's that's what you'd go there to experience and learn. Or if you wanted to go to uh, another planet and wanted to experience, I don't know, expansion, you might want to you, you might go to Jupiter or something like that. You can actually get Edgar Casey astrological reports, and some of this gets into this with his with his work. 
Uh, Steiner has his own theory of planets and consciousness. And Rudolf stuff. Steiner, right? That's right. Yeah. And even Carl Jung had a very strong interest in astrology from like an archetypal perspective. So I think that for me, in my experience in working with astrology and trying and, and, and looking at, you know, what we would call mundane factors that when I say mundane, it's the, it's how you use astrology to look at events in the world. That's fine. This it, is, this is a one Oh one level course. Yeah. So I, yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up, right? Like when I use the word mundane, it's like, well, looking at something like nine 11 or the Kennedy assassination and see, okay, what was going on astrologically at the time. And, and, my experience with mundane astrology has been revelatory in terms of looking at certain things. And even, it's really interesting because in sidereal astrology, like you're about 15, 15 degrees behind your sun sign with sidereal astrology. And sidereal astrology, again, is based on this other system where we just talk about like 13 signs, etc. So I, I like to road test these sorts of things. Just to make sure that you know we're talking about like the, the you know like is there a there there? So I remember getting into this sidereal versus uh, placidus debate with this guy one time on Facebook, and he was you know really adamant that you know that the elites use sidereal astrology and they give us mundane astrology to distract us, blah, blah, blah. And there may be some truth to that. I wouldn't speak that. But it's like, okay, well, let's test. Have you ever tested your theory? And he's like, well, no, I haven't. I said, well, I have. So let me give you an example. So there's a boxer by the name of Tyson Fury. Do you know who he is? I do, yeah. Okay. So what do they call Tyson Fury? Do you know his nickname? Oh, no, I don't. I would think with the last name Fury, you don't need a nickname. So no, I don't know that. No, his, his nickname is the Gypsy King. No. Well, I, I didn't know you were so allowed to use the word gypsy, but all right. <laughs> yeah, no, you can because he is a gypsy. He's a he's a um, he's he's not a raw, but he's a gypsy in the uh, in the sense that Brad Pitt was a gypsy um, uh, in the uh, movie Lock, with not Lost Doctor, but the other Snatch. One. Snatch, yeah, Brad Pitt. He's that kind of a gypsy. Well, I I, I love the movie Snatch, but uh, <laughs> it's a great movie. He, 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 like he comes from that community where they live in caravans. Okay. Right? And what does Brad Pitt do? He's a fighter. He's a boxer. Right? Yep. So that's Tyson Fury's world. Now, astrologically, do you remember when he fought Deontay Wilder for the second time? Do you remember how he came into the ring? Oh, no. I haven't I haven't watched boxing probably since so, Evander so Holyfield. Tyson Fury comes into the ring on a throne. And he's got a crown. Yeah, but he's a king. There you go. He's a king, right? So guess what his sign is? Ooh, uh, well, what's the what's the sign for the kings? Leo, right? Exactly, that's a sign. So, if I were to use sidereal astrology and back out 15 days from Tyson Fury, that would make him a cancer. Mm -hmm. That is not the behavior of a cancer. A cancer would not call themselves the gypsy king. Okay, so I'm not saying that there isn't a there there with sidereal astrology. And I think there is. But we, we live in, in my estimation, because we've been doing this for so long that we live in a mundane, we live in a mundane world. And maybe it's more mundane than we actually understand. 
but you know, that's the difference between the two, right? Like he shows up as a Leo, but in the sidereal world, he's a Cancer, and that is not the behavior of Cancer. Trust me, they wouldn't do that. So anyway, that's kind of the long and short of it, and, and I think that you know this this idea that there's this geocosmic influence, which I do believe there is, and also that we've animated the system, and I do believe that we have, and that we live in an archetypal universe, and these are the expressions of archetypes through our daily lives. And so there's another component to that. You add it all up, and it becomes a very interesting way of looking at and trying to understand the world without becoming overly orthodox. Like, there are a lot of astrologers like who get so micro and fractal with everything. Like, this is going on today, this is going on today, this is going on today. And like, lighten up, right? Just lighten up and live your life. And yeah, it's good to know about these things. Good to know, understand what's going on in your chart or what's going on in the world. But like, if you live your life like that, how can you truly be free? And it's like a prison or a cage, if you ask me. Right, one that you of your own construct. But uh, exactly. To borrow your word, mundane, I, I, I'd want to go back to the basics, back to the mundane. Not the probably not the same way you used it, but both without a pejorative, just you know, like normal. You can't say normal anymore without having to explain what you mean by normal. Um, right. uh, so, can you explain how literally how did we come upon these 12 constellations? I mean, it, am the I correct? Sign, the, the 12 signs, the 12, 12 signs, and they they do follow the do they follow the procession of the sun? What does the age of Aquarius mean? Like, how, how is, how, like, what are these basics? What, what, what does this mean? And how did we come about these 12 signs? And then we can get into the 13th, because I know that, you know, the, the sun, I'm told, is the 13th sign, but it's sort of not. And, and I sort of have my own theories as to why I replaced it. That's not important. My theories don't matter, because you're the guest. Um, well, no, your theories do now, right? But you should your theories. Well, if we, so, we'll get to them at the, later on if we remember. I, I, I want I want the audience to know what, whatever counts for objective in this world as to how did we get these twelve signs? What you know? How are they determined? And and then and then I am a little bit of, uh, obsessed with that thirteenth sign, so I want to talk about that. Too. So, so the, the twelve signs again they come out of this Ptolemaic tradition, right? So if you if you look at the sign of Aries, like what do you see with Aries? Well, there are two symbols really for Aries. Well, there's one symbol. It's like the ram's head, mm-hmm. right? So the most, the most like um, simple relationship to that is this thing that comes straight up, and then it has these two like curving lines. Yeah, branches. Yeah, I mean, that's also symbolic of growth coming out of the ground, which is related to the springtime. Right. So these are, in a lot of ways, these are agronomical symbols. Or a chalice, you know, to, to steal from uh, Dan Brown and his, his uh, books. The other thing that Aries is related to, if you, again, look at it, it's related to the reproductive system of a woman. Huh? Yeah, fallopian. There you go. Exactly. So there are two symbols for Aries. One would be fertility and the other would be new growth. And that would be synonymous with the springtime. Mm-hmm. So we can go through pretty much every sign and there would be a symbolic representation. I, I mean even more basic than that. I mean is it is it that 
they they these signs follow the procession of the sun in the same position of the sun uh, I would say yes I mean now you're talking about like astrological ages right and the procession of the equinoxes mm -hmm. so going from the age of Aries to the age of Pisces mm -hmm. to the age of Aquarius and again we're getting into what is that a 26,000 year, year cycle something right? like that yeah 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 so I mean yeah so if you want to go to the macro that's how it works theoretically right and in that procession things move in a reverse order so theoretically we've been in the age of Pisces some people say we'll be in the age of Pisces for like another what like I forget the exact number like 1700 years or something like that yeah they, they, they're now, basically now where it's a real like you know fuzzy like astrological logic no no I get and, that I, I just so, just so the signs to, to answer your question the signs follow the procession of the equinoxes through the astrological years. Okay. All right. So then let's get back to our friend, the, the 13th sign. What was it? Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus. All right. What's poor Ophiuchus and what, and what happened to Ophiuchus? Got cast out. Ophiuchus is, is the, is the serpent, right? I mean, it's kind of like the serpent getting cast out of the garden. Yeah, that's that, yeah. That, okay. So that is my theory, and that is correct because it's it's the serpent of the serpent bearer, right? So that's right, that's and right. It, it was replaced by the sun. So you know that that sort of fits with the. I mean, I think anybody who's listens to the show, but even if this is the first time, sort of obvious the sun replacing the serpent. What what that is symbolical of in you know almost any of the Abrahamic religions and. And in a lot of places, serpents sort of get a bad rap, right or wrong, I don't know. Uh, that That's a matter for other debates as well. And and I know in, you know, say, Chinese culture, that it's like the opposite. Uh, well, n the sun never gets a bad rap, but, but serpents, you know, are sort of venerated, um, or certain serpents. Anyway, so it, it's as simple as that. Uh, Ophiuchus is the serpent. Here's another, here's another way of looking at it. Theoretically, let's say there is this idea of a serpent line of, you know, serpent bloodline, serpentine bloodline. If I was a member of the serpentine bloodline, I'd like to have, you know, whatever kind of remnant or trace of that removed. Because I would, you know, that's a cult, right? That's being, you know, that's the bloodline being occulted and hidden. So it was like, oh, is that interesting? Yeah, why don't we take this out? It's like, yeah, this never really existed. We're going to have a different model. So you can theoretically operate in secrecy from behind the scenes. But what, another way of looking at it. So you're saying that the the members of Ophiuchus did it on purpose, so to help their be secretive, as opposed to they were cast out. They sort of voluntarily bowed out and and help say, "Hey, don't mind us. We're not here." That's right. There's a, that's another way of looking at it. Okay, so I mean, the cast out is rather convenient. Then the the we did this to ourselves is 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 more fits in with the narrative of a of a sort of a a scheme or a plan or yeah, well, a scheme or plan are the same thing. Um, that's interesting. You know, it's fun. Funny how you you mentioned Ophiuchus is is a cult. You know, why is it more of a cult than Leo or Aries or Capricorn or Gemini? I mean, they're they're because it's hidden. The yeah, whole idea of the word cult remains hidden. From a cult. Yeah, a cult. Yeah, it's like a cult. It's like not seen. Scorpio is an occulted sign because it's an eighth house sign. 
Now that's it's great. Generally, it's not, <laughs> it's not the same. Leo's not a culprit because Leo's like you know, it's the sun, it's front and center, it's like it's out there theoretically, right? And so, and most of the rest of the signs are, except for I think Pisces is an occulted sign too because it's a twelfth house sign and it's a hidden sign. So, oh, there's so much here that, that, that we're not going to be able to get into because it's so beyond where I am yet. Yeah, that's the key word. Um, is is that why I'm uh, maybe a little bit obsessed with Fiacus because I'm a Scorpio and so we're sort of neighbors? Well, I think I think obsession is part of the Scorpio makeup, right? Yeah. Obsession is is you know if you look, if you were to go and look at look up Scorpio online. You know, it would take you maybe one or two passes to find the word obsession that would show up in, you know, as a bullet point. And so maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just part of your your natural makeup. I'm a Scorpio rising, so I get obsessed about certain things. What does is, what is Scorpio rising mean? How's that different than Scorpio? Well, the rising sign is like, you know, what sign was rising at the time you were born, not the constellation. Oh, Although, I see. If you, if you were to get into sidereal ascendance it would be constellation but in western astrology placidus astrology um it's the sign that was rising at the time you were born and through the rising sign you display characteristics that you show the world um, and those so it's almost like you're learning through that you're learning through that approach to the world is rising so, like the opposite of retrograde? It just appears that things are moving closer to us, or is it not related at all? It's not related at all. What's the opposite of retrograde? Direct. Direct. Okay. Um, so rising is is not part of this. So what what is a? How would you tell someone who had no idea what a rising sign is? Me. <laughs> what 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 does rising sign mean? So the rising sign is think of it as being like um, a mask that you're putting a mask on and you get to learn how to interact with the world through that mask until there's a certain level of integration with that. So your sun sign theoretically is what you're born into and you're bringing that without any kind of um, struggle into this lifetime, right? You're going to experience those things. But the rising sign allows you to learn something different than your sun sign until there's a certain point where you integrate it. And then the two theoretically can work together so that you can have an approach to the world that is both internal and external. All right. Um, I, I was looking, I'm sorry, I'm looking at something here. And it, apparently the same gentleman who, at least most recently, uh, proposed that 13th sign, said there should also be a 14th sign, Cetus. What, first of all, is that correct? And what's that all about? Well, there's a, there's a number of, I mean, yeah, Cetus is the whale. Right? Cetus oh, is right. the whale. It's like Cetaphod. Okay, got it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, if you wanted to play, play with, at some point, though, right, the one thing about the 12 sign system is that you can wrap your head around it, right? It's pro- you, know, you and I are having a fairly basic conversation about astrology. What if we introduce like 16 other signs and they were all part of who you are? Like now all of a sudden we're dealing with different levels of complexity, micro complexity. And the beautiful thing about astrology 
is, is the system that I use, which is Placidus, Western Placidus astrology, is that each of the houses represent something specific. Right? You could use that as a guide and a map to understand who you are and how the world works. So, for instance, I'll take you. I'll give you a quick tour around the chart. All yeah, right? please. So you, you you have your first breath and you come into the body. That's Aries. Aries is will, right? Will unmanifest, meaning you just are. But you just are. Aries is pure will. Like, you know, I think it's a an aphorism from William Blake. Like, you know, does you know, does the what is it, does the oak tree tell the daffodil how to grow daffodil how to grow? No. The the daffodil just grows, right? It has an isness to it. So Aries is about isness. There is no undifferentiation of Aries. So if you take that, you apply that to the state of being a baby, right? What you do as a baby, you laugh, you cry, you shit, you eat. You don't even think about it, right? Yeah. There's no thinking involved. Okay, well, that lasts for a little while. Then what happens? Well, eventually, you get toilet trained. That is the first function that happens to an individual that differentiates that from their will made unmanifest. Now all of a sudden you got to be conscious of your bowels. Oh, I'm about to take a poop. I've got to hold it. I have to clench my sphincter, right? And then guess what you have to do? You got to figure out how to wipe it yourself, right? Now you're in the sign of Taurus. Taurus has to do with bodily functions and becoming aware of your bodily functions, what you eat, what happens, all those things. Primary. It separates you out from your individual will made unmanifest where everything was done for you and you didn't have to think about it. All right, let's go on to the third house. <clears throat> the third house is Gemini. Gemini is when language comes into play. It represents language, communication, it represents your family, siblings. But even in Gemini, <clears throat> excuse me, we deal with things like duality, right? Because of the twins. So when you go to school, because Gemini represents early childhood, education all the way up really through high school look what happens you go to school and if you act out you get a dog's cap put on you put in the corner right so now you're learning about this whole idea of what's right and wrong in a social setting so that's gemini kicks in and you have duality so you learn about how to communicate you get education and you become aware of other people in your environment i.e your siblings the fourth house is your home and this is where, by the way, if we go back to the second house in Taurus, that's where you learn material values. Material values. And the, and the prime material value that a person understands, and I'm sorry to break it down in such fundamental terms, is when to shit or not shit. And then what you do afterwards. Everything from that point forward is an aggregation of that, more or less. And then you get to the fourth house. What do you learn in the fourth house? Well, that's where you receive everything that's related to your family, emotional values. You get your, your influences from your mother, your home life, right? So what we see here is we see the progression of the chart from not having any language skills, from just being, just pooping, you know, just eating, just laughing, just crying, to learning how to speak with Gemini 
And now you look around you and you go, oh, okay, well, these are the people that I'm living with. This, these are the emotional values I'm getting from them, right? Then you go into the fifth house, which is Leo. It's about the things that you love. You might find a hobby or a pastime. Gee, I'm really into comic books, or I like playing sports, or I enjoy, you know, drawing or cooking or whatever those things are. And you fall in love in the fifth house. That's Leo, right? So now you're, you're, you're becoming more complex. You're finding things that you're drawn to. And usually these things happen in, to some degree of childhood, which, you know, in our timeline, we could run that probably all the way up to 30. But, it, but really about, like, you know, 15, 16, 17. Then we get to the sixth house. Traditionally, the sixth house has to do with Virgo. And the thing that you love is the thing that you learn. Theoretically, this is what's supposed to happen. And then you get training whatever that thing is. Apprenticeship. No, it's the elite. I just got a call from Paradise. Oh, well, that's a good place to get called from. Paradise Property Management. I have to get this call today. Um, so, anyway, um, you get to the sixth house, and you're supposed to learn something. Right? You get good at it. I'll use William Blake as an example. He was an illustrator, um, and he learned how to apprentice um, through illustrations by going to the morgue mm. in London, and he would do still lives of dead bodies. Right, that's where he got his that's where he got his apprenticeship, and then he then he then he printed acid etch. He actually developed the acid etch um, plate printing model. Right? I think I think I learned that at some point. So so then once you get really good at something, you can take care of yourself. Then then what happens? <laughs> you go to the seventh house. You have relationships. Right, and in a relationship, you can you can take care of the other person theoretically. Right, right. So there's there's like a wisdom to this. So then you like you know Libra, the scales ruled by Venus, balance, justice, contract. So you have a contract with another person. Oh, you like me? Yes. I like you? Yes. We're going to get married? Yeah. Why don't we do that? Okay. Then what happens after that? You go into your sign, Scorpio, which is the eighth house. And then you procreate. Scorpio rules sex. So now you have progeny, right? And once you have progeny, then what? Now you've got a family. Well, what do you need for your family? You need spiritual and religious training. So you've got a moral basis and foundation to raise that family and live your life. What does that rule by? The ninth house in Sagittarius. Once you have your spiritual basis, foundation, spiritual, religious foundation, and training, then what? You could go into the 10th house, right? And in the 10th house, what do you do? You take everything you learn from the 6th house so that you can have a, a much bigger career. That's Capricorn. You can start a company. The idea is that if you start a company, you'll have the spiritual, religious, and moral training so you don't fuck anybody over. That you have the ability to do that and, and run a sound business. How am I supposed to start a company without fucking anyone over? I'm kidding. Well, I, well, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's right. Well, we can get into that because the process got corrupted. I'll tell you why. Okay. So then you get to the so once you're done, because what most people would spend the majority of their lives theoretically in the tenth house until they can no longer do what they're supposed to do, either through the accomplishment of certain goals or. Like, I'm just done with this, I'm too old, 
you know, I can no longer do this work, right? Then, they, then what's what's next after that? Well, then they go to the eleventh house, which is Aquarius. So in the eleventh house, you would have theoretically more leisure time. You would have more um, uh, altruistic time because Aquarius tends to be altruistic, right? So all the things that you acquire materially through your tenth house life, you would you would give back to some degree, and then you would enjoy. You know, time, you know, either playing golf or pickleball or whatever that is, right? It's like, okay, I'm done. But then what happens, eventually you find out your friends start dying, and then eventually you're going to die. So where do you go? You go to the 12th house. You go to Pisces. What does Pisces represent? Hospitals, convalescence. It's also where you leave the charter. So if you were to go and throw in, you know, three, four other signs, what are you going to get out of that? Like you would have these kind of micro zones where you might have more nuance and it might be interesting, but I just, I just show you the kind of the path for life. It's all there in the chart, in the wheel, but the challenge, here's what happened. This is the answer to your question. We replaced spiritual training um, in apprenticeship with college and university because that's what the ninth house represents now universities, which are pretty, pretty much a modern thing. You know, like a lot of people who were part of the masses did not go to college. You got a trade, you got a job and you started working. You know, the, this whole idea of college really takes off post-World War II with the GI Bill. So then what happens? Well, people lose a very important element with that sixth house to learn a skill and to learn a craft and to become competent at it. It's, it's, it's a, that sixth house represents, in a lot of ways, a ritualization. Because when you go into something, you might be okay at it, but I guarantee you, you'll be better at it after you go through that apprenticeship. And, and a real um, steward, right, who's going to work with you on your apprenticeship skills is not supposed to coddle you. They're supposed to show you where your shortcomings are and to, you know, if they're really good, they'll reward what you're good at, but they'll make it very clear what you're not good at. Let me ask a question on that, though. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but isn't the idea of college so that if anyone goes there, they can sort of pick their own trade so they could sort of break the bonds of doing what their father did? What happens with college is you get a bunch of entitled people who are not really prepared to go into the 10th house. So they get a degree, they've had no real moral training, no real religious training, no real skill training. And so you have a bunch of snot-nosed people who think they know what they're doing because they got a piece of paper. In some degrees, maybe that's true. I don't want to dismiss everybody that's gone to college. You've gone to college, you got a law degree, I went to college. But what's ha- what happens now is that you get people that come out of that institution and they have not every case, but in a lot of cases, very low emotional IQs. Mm-hmm. And they're not really ready to deal with the real world. And in fact, there's often, even more so now than ever, there's a real sense of entitlement. Because mm-hmm. they haven't had any real, real world. So we corrupted. We we skipped the sixth house now. So you go from the fifth house, well, I love this and I love this. And you go straight to the ninth house, which I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree. I'm going to get knowledge. 
and then I'm going to go into the 10th house. What happens? You skip the 6th house, the 7th house, and the 8th house. Like, we're not living a full astrological life. And for better or worse. And I and I know this for a fact. Because when I went into, like, going back to the beginning of our conversation, our two college experiences, my two college experiences, when I went to, you know, State University, you know, I thought I was hot shit. And then I got, I got laid down real quick. And that was the beginning of my apprenticeship. I had to understand what I didn't know. But not everybody that goes to college knows that or experiences that. That was my experience. So I got a sixth house and a ninth house experience simultaneously. In my perfect world, people, people would take at least two years off and have like what they call a bump year. And like, go learn something. Mm-hmm. Go, go see how hard the real world is and, and try to try to master a skill or at the very least try to work in the world for a year or two so that when you do go to college, you'll appreciate it a lot more and you'll figure out, man, I don't ever want to do that again. You know, I, I, these are just my thoughts and this is how I kind of have evolved. Through this no, it's, a, it's an interesting way that you're sort of blending uh, astrology with the sort of sociological phenomena that's uh, occurring here, uh, you know, and not just in the first world or, well, that's an outdated term, but the developed countries. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, that's interesting because I, I, when you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, there's a whole lot of people, they sort of go to college or school and then they, you know, but they never stop playing video games, you know, they sort of, just, you know, they're gaming, you know, and not, and not to put down what, what I'm doing right now, probably what you do, but, you know, a lot of people, they think podcasting and gaming is a career. Um, and that's sort of like that, you were saying that, that ninth house there, or whether they're skipping or the 10th house, they're sort of skipping sort of the in-between, the, the where you learn to be a human, learn to work for what you've got, learn to appreciate what you've got. Uh, it's also relationships and commitment and carrying out agreements. Like you don't do that without going through the seventh house. And the eighth house, which is very scorpionic, you deal with sex, you deal with procreation, you deal with temptation. You deal with a lot of different darker psychological moral dilemmas in that in that space. Yeah, I, I, I can vouch for that one. Yeah, and everybody has to go through that. I think everybody has to go through it so they know not what to do. Unless you're one of these rare people, and they do exist, who have had, you know, great genes, you know, great epigenetic surroundings and great family training, in which case, you know, you're you're lessons in that world might be a little less intense or graphic or um, difficult. Yeah, I'm not sure about what what, what my causes are. I'm not gonna, I can't blame anything on anyone but me. So, <laughs> you know, uh, That's good. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I think at some point we were talking about, uh, so what is the impact astrologically about retrograde versus direct? So retrograde, Let's say it's a Mercury retrograde. That's uh, the most commonly talked about retrograde. Um, first of all, I'm one of the. Uh, I'm an astrologer, where I, in like a real time sense, place less and less emphasis on Mercury retrograde. Okay. And the reason why is because I feel like we get engaged in self fulfilling prophecies, and they're very powerful. So if you think a Mercury retrograde is going to fuck up your life, there's more than a better chance it'll fuck up your life. 
Right. That said, I think that there is some truth to Mercury. I've experienced it. But it's not like I go in and I start marking Mercury retrograde in the shadow of Mercury retrograde two and a half weeks beforehand. I don't do that. Right. So the idea of Mercury retrograde, oh, yeah, this, is, this is an interesting example. All right. So theoretically, things that, so, that are associated with Mercury would operate in reverse. Right. For instance, um, travel. You might experience travel delays. You might experience a breakdown that are, that are with things that are related to travel. Um, usually, with Mercury retrograde, you don't really want to sign contracts, and I do believe that to be true, all the way, because those things could become undone. But there would not be a sound basis for that. And one of the reasons why I know that is because I got married on a Mercury retrograde and it didn't turn out so well. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think Mercury retrograde is in- interesting from that perspective. Like you, but there's a positive thing too with Mercury retrograde. Like there are things that you may have lost, and they may show up during Mercury. Um, there are things that can be fixed during Mercury retrograde. Like repairs can be. You know, we're dealing with the you know the you know the the, uh, the reroute right retrograde repair regenerate. So some of those things can happen during Mercury. Um, I'll tell you a story. This is one of my favorite stories to tell. I was with this guy. Wait, before you tell the and, story, let me. Yeah, so yeah. I, I heard someone else say something similar to. So it sounds like you're you're saying the same thing. Did any of the the words that start with R E? You can turn them into a positive. Positive. Revisit. Reevaluate. Review. Exactly. So exactly. so so it doesn't have to be retrograde as in you know retard or something bad. It, you you can turn it into something where you're reevaluating and going forward. You just have to know how to use it. That's right. Exactly. That's why I think some knowledge of astrology is useful. Do you have to become an astrology geek? No, I don't think so. Not everybody has a head for it. You it's know? a lot. And just, just, just like I, I don't have a head for being an electrical engineer. That's why I'd hire one because I don't want I don't want to shock myself. Yes. Anyway, that's um, amazing. So, so I was I was with a friend of mine, and we were parked one day uh, outside of a. Uh, market in San Francisco. We were on the back side of the market. And he I remember at that time Mercury was retrograde in the sign of Gemini. And he asked me, he said, So tell me about Mercury retrograde. And I said, Well, you know, it's this, it's that. I mean Gemini, you really gotta watch out for impatience through travel. If you have impatience through travel, you know, it could be dangerous. And as soon as I said that, this guy took the corner too fast in the area that we were in, and he wound up slamming into a parked car. And I, and I said to, the, to my friend, I said, just like that. So it was a real-time exposition of Mercury retrograde, which doesn't always happen. But in Gemini, uh, sometimes it does. So... That was an example of Mercury retrograde in Gemini in a real-time space. Gotcha. I, um, so direct, what, talk, talk about direct. So, I mean, I think maybe... Well, let's talk about Mercury retrograde. Let's talk okay. about retrograde plants in a chart because I think that's a more kind of, we can go to direct, but I think that's an interesting, let's say you have three or four planets retrograde in a chart, which people do. It's like, okay, well, what, what are those planets? Where are they? What do they represent? And usually a lot of retrograde motion in a chart 
can indicate that a person is going to learn more from their mistakes than what they do right, and that there can actually be practical, applicable um, examples of that. So if you want to be an analyst, if you've got a bunch of retrograde action in your chart, it could actually be helpful because you would know what doesn't work versus what works. So again, you know, there's the, you know, finding, for me with astrology, finding the flow of the chart and finding the flow for the individual is really where it's at and not fighting against it. To understand kind of what these things are and what you're good at, where where the challenges are, how you overcome those challenges, looking at real time examples, going into the past, talking about the present, and speculating on the future. Direct is essentially when a planet, you know, over a period of time will go direct. Saturn will have three retrograde motions during the Saturn transit, right? They'll have three retrograde motions. And over a planet, that means something. You know, when a, when a planet goes retro, let's say Saturn goes, let's say you have a Sun-Saturn conjunction. Well, the first time Saturn conjuncts your Sun, you become aware of limitation. Because that's how Saturn works. It's about limitation. Saturn moves past the Sun, you say, okay, I got a handle on this limitation. I figured out what I can do. You know, I got this, right? I just, you know, write a few extra documents, cover my ass, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here comes Saturn. It retrogrades again comes back over the sun and you realize that you didn't have it together as you thought you did. Mm. So then it goes retrograde, it goes past the sun. And now you've got to, you know, reevaluate. There's that rework, reevaluate your approach that you weren't as right or correct with the first time. And if you're humble enough, you'll understand it. And then you'll go back and you'll think about your approach. You'll reapproach it. You'll come up with something else, whatever that something else is. It could be even just admitting that you weren't right. So retrograde then, is, in essence, your mistakes. Direct is showing, seeing if you can learn from your mistakes. And then the next theoretically, retrograde... Theoretically, yeah. I think that, 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 that that's a distillation of it. Yeah. It could be, it could be somebody else's mistakes, too. Yeah. Right? Depends on the planet. Like, if it's a Neptune retrograde, it could be somebody else's mistake. And then what you thought for a long time was, you know, oh, I'm the one to blame. I'm the one to blame. I'm the one to blame. Neptune retrograde comes in, you realize, holy shit, I've been a patsy here. And all these other people have set up their reality in a way that allowed me to believe it. And guess what? I'm not down with that. Right? So like a Mercury retrograde, Neptune retrograde over your sun could be very disillusioning. You could be looking at, like, the falsity and the lie of the world with a Neptune retrograde. And that's not even necessarily a person's fault. It's a byproduct of their enculturation. Wow, this is this is a lot of stuff. Um, I, I don't think that I could possibly dis, uh, distill all of it. And I feel a little bit bad because we haven't talked at all about what is the, um, the, the what was the synchro mystic? What was, what was the word? Well, the synchro mysticism has to do with like looking at events in the world and seeing them as an extrapolation of something larger and that there's a pattern at work. Oh, so it's, it's directly related to what we were been talking yeah, about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I, I, I mean, it's good in that I, I feel like we didn't ignore half of what we were going to talk about because they're, they're interrelated. They're interrelated. I, the, the astro, you know, 
Mythos's part was just something it's like, okay, I need to come up with something that I do. I'm an astrologer, yes, but I'm not a typical astrologer. Um, so this is this is the closest that was the closest I could come up with. No, but there are a lot of people it's a good who word. Do, do identify as synchromystics and, and and some of them are actually quite brilliant. Okay. So okay, so the, the synchromysticism is basically applying your knowledge or your way of interpreting what, what's happening to somebody's real world in, uh, experiences, whether it's directly from them or it's someone else's or something else's and how it's been influencing them. To some degree, I would say synchromysticism would be more collective than personal. Okay. Can you uh, say what that means? Yeah. So for instance, uh, 9-11. 9-11 is a synchromistic event. It has personal impacts on people. Obviously, especially if you were there, you were a fireman, and you were inhaling um, all the uh, the chemicals and toxins. That's a, that's an immediate event. If you were somebody who lost somebody in the collapse of those buildings, that's immediate an, an immediate event. But outside of that, it's a collective event. So what does that mean? What was going on at that time? Right, like both astrologically. Um, astrotheologically, what does it relate to? You know, where, where does it come from? Is there a pattern there? What does it say about the new century? That's like a synchromistic event. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. So I, I'm not going to ask you to sort of plot that all out because that that's probably some of the stuff that you do in, in your own stuff. But I, I understand what you mean by that, um, where, you, where you can look at it collectively and, and, and in, uh, do the interpretation or the definition um very interesting stuff um i, I do want to go back to something that was a little bit basic and and i'm not sure if this is your thing or not because I, what i'm starting to decipher is that you know there's deep astrology and this sort of like commercial astrology um but what what is i mean again the song the dawning of the age of aquarius what what does that mean what's the age of something mean so Using like the age of Pisces as a reference point. Sure. The age of Pisces is related theoretically. That's where we are again. This procession of the equinoxes, the you know these these um, what I would call galactic years or cosmic years. Uh, the you know which would be related to like yuga cycles. But the age of Aquarius in, in our time is related to these Abrahamic religions. I'm sorry, Age of Pisces, rather. Abrahamic religions. And that the Age of Pisces is is connected to the most universal Western symbol, which would be the symbol of Jesus, which would be sacrificial, right? Somebody who dies for the sins of others, that there is a redemptive quality to it, um, that there is this whole idea of life, death, resurrection, um, you know, of the kingdom of God. But there are other, you know, tributaries that are related to that, right? I mean, even looking at, like, the uh, like the clergy, right, with their fish heads, you know, they wear those, you know, like those, the, the hats that bishops wear which are essentially like these fish hats, which mm-hmm. are representative of the age of Pisces. Wow. So we look at Pisces and we look at the literature, we look at the art, we look at something like T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, 
which is a modern take on the Fisher King, which is Piscean and the Fall and the you know kind of the the, the eternal moon of modern society. And you look at a lot of the even something like as mundane as the Omega Man with Charlton Heston. Right? You look at the last scene of the Omega Man. And Charlton Heston is in a Christ pose, and they're 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 taking his blood from him because he has the antibodies to sustain the new race, right? So the age of Pisces is embedded in our psyche. It's embedded in our collective awareness. It's embedded in this idea that there is this um, archetypal martyr who will die for humanity. But through the death of that martyr, there is eternal life. And even in the Omega Man, see, that's a, that would be a synchronistic moment in the Omega Man. That in cinema, he's dying for the future life of humanity, right? That's what happens. So that's what the age of Pisces is related to. It's our faults. It's our collective. It's our individual weakness that allows us to transcend through sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, we experience something more eternal and more whole. The age of Aquarius, and there's a lot of debate about when the age of Aquarius begins, when it began. I have my own thoughts about that. But the age of Aquarius is when we move away from the age of Pisces because these ages go in reverse. They don't go Pisces to Aries. They go from Pisces to Aquarius, and then Aquarius theoretically Capricorn, but we're a long, long ways away from that. And the Fifth Dimension sang that song back in the 1960s, and it, the 19th, this gets into a much deeper discussion, but when you look at the assassination of JFK, which happens uh, in 1963, to me that is the... the JFK, whether you believe he's dead or not, there are a lot of people that don't believe he died. I'm not one of them. But JFK is the Fisher King, right? He is the Fisher King. Um, the United States was, um, you know, what was it considered? Uh, not Avalon. But Camelot. Was, you know, yeah, so so it's like Camelot, thank you, which is Arthurian, right? Camelot's mm-hmm. Arthurian. And Arthur suffers the same moves as the Fisher King. And he, you know, when when he has the wound, you know, Camelot goes into darkness, and, and you know, the crops don't produce. So this is what happens with JFK. He is the Fisher King. So it sends us into, you know, this timeline of darkness. And when you look at what was happening astrologically at that time, Saturn was in the sign of Aquarius, and Aquarius is the symbol of the Aquarian age. So what happens when we come out of that? Well, we don't even really come out of that. What happens on the other side of the death of Kennedy? You have Johnson, who institutes the war on poverty, right? Um, and this whole, you know, the great society, it, which is very Aquarian in its spirit. It's very, you know, we're going to give out, you know, all these stipends, and the welfare state is going to, expand and we're, you know and then you go into the whole civil rights thing and everything becomes very Aquarian at that point and the new leader isn't even really Johnson although Johnson takes over somebody like Martin Luther King becomes a leader which is very Aquarian it's a social movement 
civil rights, and even Rosa Parks, who is connected to Martin Luther King, is an Aquarian. Right? She gets on the you know the bus and says, you know, sit back. Um, which which is by the way, that's astroturf. That's a different discussion. So we get into this idea of people who become these like global leaders. Even Gandhi kind of falls into that camp a little bit. Then we have this whole idea of MK Ultra and the influence into pop culture with groups like the Beatles, which are group oriented, group consciousness. Before that, we had these individual people like Buddy Holly, even though we had a band, it was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. It wasn't John Lennon and the Beatles. You had Elvis Presley, who was individual. You had Jerry Lee Lewis, who was individual. And even somebody like Bill Haley, it was Bill Haley and the Comets. And they all kind of either die or go away, or they get embroiled in legal battles. Chuck Berry goes to prison. And then you have the Beatles who emerge, and this whole idea of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Yardbirds. It's not Eric Clapton and Yardbirds. It's all group consciousness. So this idea that the Aquarian age comes into play at this time is significant. And the, and the first Beatles record is released in North America and Canada, I believe, the same day or the week after JFK dies. So it would be in November of 1963. So there's this idea that the Aquarian age and its darkness starts during that time, that we become indoctrinated in this whole idea of this dark Aquarian age. And I think there's some truth to that, although it's not fully fleshed out. So if we fast forward, like where we are now, Saturn and Aquarius, every time you see Saturn and Aquarius, there's some kind of like global activity. The last time Saturn was in Aquarius when George H.W. Bush was president, and we went to war with Iraq, and the entire war, world went to war with Iraq, Iraq. It was called the Coalition for Willing. We have our first public murmuring to the New World Order with Saturn and Aquarius. So what happens the next time? We go into a global lockdown, and we have Anthony Fauci, we have these figureheads, but they're not figureheads in the political sense. Fauci represents a group. Tedros Ahadnaten represents a group, right? So Aquarius is about, you know, group consciousness, group think, group ideas. And with, you know, this, you know, Capricorn, which is the sign before Aquarius, you have an individual leader, like a president. Well, now we don't really have that as much anymore, right? We're moving into this whole idea of what we would call a technocracy, much more Aquarian, where there's group things or where there's, well, I don't have the answer to that. You know, the answer to that really came down from, you know, our, you know, our focus group on health, which is, you know, run here by um, the hospital, the hospitals in the area. They're the ones that provided us with the details and the blueprints and how to do this. But there's no one singular person there. There's no one singular person. So there's no, there's no, there's no one person that takes the successor blame for the successor failure of any project. So we're being moved into this whole idea now because 2020 was a huge year. It was huge. And every time you go through a decade, especially a zero decade, where there's a new president, it represents a new changing of the tides, 
where there's a new wave of consciousness for better or worse. If you just go back and look at, like, look at Kennedy, who was elected in 1960. And then what happens? We go through the 60s and it's tumultuous. And it's a time of huge change. And we don't get another president that's elected in a zero year until we get to Reagan. And what happens with Reagan is tumultuous, huge change. You know, the Soviet Union falls, theoretically. We have Reaganomics and, and this massive, right? We don't have another president that's elected in a zero year again until who? Joe Biden. And here we are. Everything is massively changing. You know, everything is changing. Well, George, so, George Bush was elected in 2000. There's, okay, so there, that's right. It's another area, my bad, another area of change, 9-11. My apologies for that. So, but that just proves my point. Every time we get a president in a zero year, it's massive change. And, and this one has to do with what I would call the dark Aquarian age, which is which is really where we are. Well, interesting. There's a, there's a lot there, a lot to consider, a lot to unpack. And I, I, I'm looking at the time, and I, I think that we, we could never cover it all and do it justice. So I'm sure that that's part of what your courses and your shows deal with. So why don't you tell the folks where they can find you, follow you, support you, uh, find out more about you and, and, and your work. So I have a, a astrology website. I used to write a lot on it, but I don't so much anymore. But it's there, and people are interested in uh, getting an astrological reading for me, doing coaching, which I do do. Um, I also have a course you can download. Um, that's all there on my website, robertphoenix.com. Um, I do a, a, a stream every day on a website called 15 Minutes of Flame. Well, not every day, Monday through Thursday. 15minutesofflame.com. That's ovflame.com. Um, and then on Fridays, I have a YouTube channel called 11th House, The 11th House. And on Fridays, I do interviews with people uh, with on a lot of different topics and subjects. And on that same channel on Sunday nights, I do um, two and a half hours show on astrology. So those are places you can get a hold of me. On Twitter, I'm AstroPhoenix9. Um, on Facebook, I'm Robert Phoenix. And that's it. Well, fascinating. We may come back to you another time and, and try to get uh, a little bit more deeper into things as I understand more things. Um, because uh, I'm the hindrance right now because uh, this is this is very new to me, but everything's new to somebody at some point. So I thank you for, for that and, and trying to take a, you know, a, a novice uh, through some of this and uh, appreciate your time and everyone check him out he's very responsive on twitter i can assure you of that um and the, the phoenix you know obviously is something that uh, uh, at its root is sort of optimistic you sort of uh, rise from the ashes so there you go so there's that's uh, your bird your scorpio jeff that's your bird it's your symbol well i have on one arm i've got a i've got my scorpio tattooed and on my other shoulder i've got my phoenix tattooed so there you go here's here's your uh and you know something? I didn't even know that they were related when I did it. I just sort of put the two things. Uh, I sort of have a story across my back, and it seems like uh, maybe that was preordained also. So uh, that, that that's pretty well, cool. I enjoyed my time with you, and I thought you asked really good questions. I appreciate it. I, I, I love when guests say that because I really don't know a lot about a lot, but I keep learning things, and I keep seeing the interconnections uh, of things. 
I'm pretty well read, but in fiction, but like like smart fiction. So you know, you you don't get always get facts, but you get enough things that are facts or at least factual. But I do appreciate that because I, I, you know, I don't want my guests to think I'm a dummy, and I also want my guests to come back so that when I, you know, sort of when I know more, I can ask um, better questions or at least more pointed questions. Like I said, this was. No, like, I think they were great. They were important questions, and they were certainly important for you to, to be, you know, for you to get a better handle of the subject matter, and also for people who may not really, you know, have the same level of kind of understanding. You know, so they were great. You know, invite me back anytime. Be happy to be here. Yeah, definitely will. I definitely will. I thank you so much. Uh, please enjoy the rest of your your day and your weekend. And good luck with your stuff. And everyone, check out his out his stuff. Just rewind about two minutes, and you'll have heard where all of his uh, information is, uh, so that you can check him out. All right. Thank you all for listening to the Garden of Doom again. Please give us five stars. As a rating, a review, let your friends know this is sort of a uh, genre-defined show, so we really benefit from uh, personal referrals and recommendations. So as I, I always think there's something for everybody here in the Garden of Doom. Uh, and, uh, you know, Aquarius sounds a little doomy. It doesn't necessarily need to be, but it sounds a little doomy, so uh, the timing seems to be right there as well. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening, and you will hear us again next week. Shit, laugh together. Hella bad legs with ten. Big old bucks for a tip. Big bling, roadie with the rings. Yeah, five new ladies in my DMs. What I do? Seems like everything I dream of comes true. They are like not for me. They use astrology. Head game crazy, need to look out to me. Then I took her on a date. <laughs> Catastrophe. Yeah, I'm sorry that the book's quick. It's not up to me. I got married to the money matrimony. No problem, no problem. Got the keys in the car, in the front for the whip in the back. Yeah. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Do you want it? Cause I do. Baby girl, I wanna do. So I think the hook's about to come back on in right now. Shit, left to give. Hella bad legs with tip. Big old bucks for a tip. Pink bling, roadie with the rings. Yeah, five new ladies in my DMs. What I do? Seems like everything I dream of comes true. They are like not for me. They use astrology. Where is all my money? In the bank where it should be. Trust me, yeah, I'm good with my money. Stash it all away, I'm baby, no money. Check, 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 check. My flow out. Check, 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 check. Stay be big now. Baby, you so sick, sick, sick. Yeah, I'm running out of beat. Oh, shit, shit, shit. Usually I make a bridge right here, but you know, today I wasn't really feeling it. Shit, left to give. Hella bad legs with tip. Big old bucks for a tip. Big bling, roadie with the rings. Yeah, five new ladies in my DMs. What I do? Seems like everything I dream of comes true. They are like not for me. They use astrology. Life, I've alive, pull up money, let me die, pepper fit, 30 yet, even if she 45 I'ma fly out, LAX, do a couple shows for a couple chicks, man, I really take a fucking net